We are in this series, It Is Written, and and the whole goal of this series is I want to help you fall in love with the Bible. Like, I want to help you fall in love with God's Word and really build your life on it, where this becomes kind of the centerpiece, the foundation of your life. It becomes the rock that you stand upon. Jesus said it like this, and this is why this is so important to me. Why? Why am I passionate about you kind of getting into God's word like never before? It's because of this very verse. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine, like everyone who, who gets involved with the Bible and not just gets involved with the Bible, but puts it into practice. Like when you, when you take the truth of God's word and you begin to put it into practice in every area of your life, Jesus says, you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So I don't want you to just know the Bible cognitively and just kind of like try to figure it out intellectually and come up with a bunch of historical facts about the Bible. I want you to get it deep down inside. Put it into practice. Why? Because there's storms that are coming. Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a storm that's about to hit your life. I mean, we go through storms and, and, and they're right around the corner. And I know you're thinking like, this is Sunday. Can't you be more positive? I'm positive there's a storm around the corner in your life. Like, there, there are storms that you are going to go through, challenges, trials, problems. Here's the difference. When you build your life on God's word, when you build your life on the rock, when the storms come, your house will stand firm. You don't have to crumble. It doesn't have to impact you the way it used to impact you. And you, you know how it used to impact. You used to go through storms, and it just felt like the house would crumble. The house would fall apart. But those who build their life on a sure foundation, those who build their life on the rock, on, on God's word, word, no matter how bad the storm is, you will stand strong. You will stand firm. You will withstand anything that Satan or hell throws at you. So this series that we're going through, I'm very passionate about it because it's not just a teaching series. This is pastoral. Like my goal is to pastor you through this. And, 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 and really, the, the goal of today is I want to help you understand the Bible. I want, you to, I want the Bible to become a joy of your life. I don't want it to just be a discipline, like I have to read the Bible. It's a discipline. I want you to love reading the Bible. I want it to become the joy. I, I want you to, to be at the place where, where you're excited to wake up in the morning because you get to read the Bible. Like, I can't wait to get up. Like, I don't need the alarm clock. I'm waking up my alarm clock because I want to know what God has to say. I can't wait till morning to, to find out what God is going to say to me, all brand new and fresh for each and every day. And one of the keys to getting to that place, because I know some of you are still at that place where it's a discipline. You're like, you know, it's a discipline. I've got to force myself to do it. I don't know what you're talking about, enjoying it. One, one of the reasons people don't enjoy is because they don't understand. I remember when the iPhone first came out, and it looked cool, but you didn't understand it at all, and it was hard to enjoy, and there was a lot of issues because it was like, I just don't get it. But the more you learn to understand it, the more you learn to enjoy it. It's kind of like marriage. like... When I married my wife 10 years ago, can I say I loved her? But I didn't understand her at all. I mean, it was, it was like, women, I don't know what it is, but it's like, you, you, you are hard to understand. It's not easy. It reminds me of a guy who's walking on the beach, and he found a genie uh, in, in a bottle. And he rubbed the bottle, and the genie came out and says, I'll give you anything you want. You get one wish. What do you want? And the guy said, well, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but, but, but I'm afraid to fly. In fact, I won't fly. So I want you to build me a bridge from here to Hawaii. Build me a bridge across the ocean to Hawaii so I can go to Hawaii for the first time. And, and the genie was like, 
that is impossible. Like, what do you, I mean, do you have any idea the amount of steel and the amount of concrete, the amount of rebar it would take, the, the labor and the man hours to build a bridge all the way from here to Hawaii? You're going to have to ask for something else. And the guy thought, he goes, well, can you help me understand my wife? And the genie said, do you want one lane or two? That's funny. That is funny. And that's true also. That's very true. Here's the thing. Like, like I love my wife 10 years ago, but I enjoy her so much more today because the more I understand her, the more I get to know her, the more I enjoy being around her. And, and I love being around her. And, and that's also true for the Bible. That, that's the goal. If you'll begin to understand the, the Bible a little bit more, you're going to enjoy it so much more. So I want to help you today understand the Bible. We're going we're gonna to start at some very basic information. Uh, but again, a lot of people just don't know this stuff. And when you know it, it really does make it so much more fun to read and study and dig into. So first off, the word Bible literally translated means book. It, it comes from the Greek word biblia. From, from the Middle Eastern city, Biblios. Biblios was the number one importer of papyrus to Egypt and, and, and to the known world at that time. Papyrus is where we get the English word paper. It was, what, uh, it was a plant leaf that was stretched into scrolls and paper. And so the Bible literally translated means book. Now, it's not little b book, it's big b book. This is the book of all books. The Bible is the most translated book in the world. It, it has sold more copies than any other book in the world. It is not just like any other book. It is the book. It, that's, why, that's why the name, they just call it book. I mean, when something's important, you don't even have to like give it a title. You just, it, it's the book. It is the book, and that is the book. The Bible is the book. And I, I keep saying that, but I want you to get the point that, that this is the big B book. It's powerful, powerful, powerful. Next week, we're going to talk about how can I defend the Bible? Like, like how, how, you know, is the Bible, can I trust the Bible? Is it reliable? Is it historically accurate? And we're going we're gonna to really dig into that next week. But let me just give you kind of one teaser to kind of whet your appetite for next week. And I want you to look at this because this is astounding to me. The Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years. I want you to think about that for a moment. 1,600 years. So if the Bible was finished in our generation, that would mean the Bible began in the year 400 A.D. But you think about a book written from 400 A.D. until today. That's the length of the Bible. In over a dozen different countries, the Bible was written on three different continents and actually in three different languages by people from all walks of life. I want you to think about how incredible that is. 40 different authors, three different languages, 12 different countries, 1,600 years, and they all tell the same story. Like, how is that possible? Like, you study the book of Quran, it was written by one man over a 23-year period, so it makes sense how it all kind of connects and goes together. The, the work of uh, uh, the, the teachings of Buddha was written by one man. The teachings of Confucius was written by one man. How in the world... Is this book written by all these different people over such a long period of time come up with one message without contradiction? I mean, the Bible was written by poets, prophets, princes, kings, sailors, soldiers, attorneys, doctors, farmers, scholars, shepherds, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, and businessmen. Imagine getting all those people to agree on anything. It was written in caves, ships, homes, palaces, prisons, and deserts. 
And, and it leads us to the big question of the day. How do they come up with the same story? How did all these people over, over such a long period of time in different languages, different cultures, different countries, different backgrounds, all tell the very same story? I mean, it's astounding when you think about it. And we're going to dig into that more next week. But let me just discuss the reason of how this was possible. It's because there were 40 different authors, but, on, but there were 40 different writers, but there was only one author to the Bible, and the author was God. The Bible is God's autobiography. God wrote the Bible through 40 different people, but it was written by God. Jesus says it like this, all scripture, all scripture. Now, at this point in his life, he's talking about the Old Testament because there was no such thing as the New Testament. So he's talking about the Old Testament. All scripture is inspired by God, or one translation says breathed by God. So, so what's powerful about that is the words themselves actually contain the power for fulfillment. I cannot encourage you enough, if you missed week one of our series, go back and watch week one online, because it is so foundational. We actually deal with that, that whole process of how the Bible is alive. It's not just a normal book. It's not a page full of ink, but the book is living, breathing, inspired by God. The very words in the Bible contain the power for their fulfillment. Paul goes on to say, the Bible is useful to teach us what is true. We all need a, a level of truth in our life. We need to know what we can count on. We need to know what is true. And it makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses the Bible to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. All of that to say it works. It works. The Bible works. The truth of God's word works and let me say it like this, it works whether you believe it or not. Like this book works for atheists, it works for, it works for everyone. One part of the Bible says the rain rains on the just and the unjust and the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. Like it works whether you believe it or not, it works whether you like it or not, it works whether you're a Christian or not, it works. Let me give, let me give you a personal illustration of this. I grew up Baptist and You've heard me talk about it, and there are a lot of like funny things about growing up Baptist, not, not, not always the healthiest culture uh, for me growing up. Thank God that there's, there's a lot of healthy Baptist churches today, but I grew up, you know, in, in the Southern Baptist, mean Bible belt. I mean, it was like the Christian Taliban when I grew up. I mean, it was rough, <laughs> but the one thing I did appreciate about my, my Baptist upbringing is they drilled into us as children tithing. I mean, they just taught us to tithe as kids. Like, you just put God first in your finance. You tithe. And, and so I grew up believing that. And then when my father left and I went through a very dark season of life where I turned my back on God, I turned my back on the church, I got involved in drugs and alcohol. And, and honestly, for, for years of my life, I hated God. Like, I hated God, I hated Christians, I hated the church, and I hated pastors especially. Like, I wanted nothing to do with any of it. But here's the thing. I, knew, I never became an atheist because I knew God was real, and I was, I was always scared of being without money. Like, I was just always afraid of, 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 like, just being in financial need. So I bought into tithing even when I was away from God. So all of those years that I hated God, and I hated pastors, and I hated the church, wanted nothing to do with any of them, I still, every single month, took 10% of everything I earned and sent it to my mom's church. 
And can I tell you, through everything I've been through in life, the one thing I've never struggled with is financial need. I have never been in financial need. And I've been through financial situations that should have destroyed me. Like, I've been through the same stuff that so many people have been through. And can I tell you, through everything I've been through, God has always provided. God has always taken care of me. God has always bought me through. Why? Because it works. It works whether you like it or not. Again, and it works whether you believe it or not. God's word works. The truth of the Bible works. And so as we get into kind of helping you enjoy it, the key is helping you understand it. Let me give you a great revelation I had when I started reading the Bible. And I didn't know this, and so I don't want to assume that, that, that you know this, but I think this will help you a lot. And it's to know the Bible's not written chronologically. Like the Bible we have, it's not in chronological order. So if you try to read the Bible cover to cover, it's not sequential. The Bible is actually grouped together in categories of books. And so let me give you an overview of how the Bible is put together so it makes a little bit more sense as you're reading. First off, let's let's kind of overview the Old Testament of the Bible. The first five books in the Bible that we have in the Old Testament is called the Law. It's the Pentateuch. It's the books of Moses. And we call it the Law because in these five books, God gave us the Law. And this is Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is the story of creation, Adam and Eve. It's the story of the flood. It brings us all the way to Joseph being sold into slavery and then rising to second in command over Egypt to the children of Israel prospering in Egypt, becoming slaves in Egypt, and then Moses coming to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. That's the, the first five books. It's, it's classified as the law, the Pentateuch. The next 12 books of the Bible is the history section of the Old Testament. It's the book of Joshua through the book of Esther. And this is all the history of the children of Israel. This is from the Exodus when they, when they finally were free from Egypt to the exile. And the Babylonians overthrew them and put all of the Israelites into exile across the world. So if you're reading the Bible chronologically, the book of Esther is actually the last book of the Old Testament chronologically. It would, be, it, w- it would be the last book of the Old. The next section is the poetry books. It's five books in all. It's Job through Song of Songs. It's Psalms. It's Proverbs. And these are po- this is poetry. And what's really cool, if you read a chronological Bible, you can actually buy a chronological Bible on Amazon or a Christian bookstore. Uh, on our version reading app that, that many of us read the Bible on, our app on our iPhone or iPad, there's actually a chronological reading plan. And what's really cool is it'll take the Psalms and the Proverbs and it'll insert them in the history section where they occurred. So you'll be reading a story of King David, and then all of a sudden, you'll read the psalm that David wrote at that moment in his life. And it really makes reading the Bible a lot of fun when when you get that chronological thing going. The next section of the Old Testament is 17 books. It's the, the prophetical section of the Old Testament, broken up into five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Now, the major prophets aren't major because they're more important. They're just longer. Like the major prophets are like 60 to 70 chapters a piece, whereas the minor prophets are two to three chapters a piece. So, so the only difference is not in importance, it's just length of the book. And again, all of this occurred during the history. So if you're reading a chronological Bible, these, these, these prophetical section of the Bible would be inserted into the different history going on through 
the Bible. Then we move into 400 years of complete silence. There's, there's no recorded, uh, anything recorded during 400 years. This is the, the period of the exile. This is when the Israelites are brought back to Jerusalem. This is during the time of Alexander the Great. If you want to know what happened between the Old Testament and New Testament, Alexander the Great was between these two. Uh, the Roman Empire emerged back onto the scene. We know that because when we get into the New Testament, it begins with, with in the day of Caesar Augustus, the Christmas story. So let's overview the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament is called the gospel. Now the gospel was a word out of history. It wasn't a Christian word. It was actually a Roman word that meant good news. It's basically a news event. Like if you turn on the news and, and they give you some positive news, that's the word gospel. It's something that happens that's very positive for the world. And the good news for us was Jesus came and he did what we couldn't do. And that's four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and not to, you know, not not to belittle anybody that knows this, but, you know, for many of us, when we started Christianity, we didn't know that, that all four of these books tell the same story. So it's the same story, four different versions of the same story from different, different people writing their account of what happened. Uh, I love the comedian Michael Jr. He was doing kind of one of his stand-up routines, and he was sharing his testimony of when he became a Christian. He said, man, when I became a Christian, I read the Bible for the first time. Like, I just, I decided I was going to read it cover to cover. And I'm, I'm reading through the Bible, and I get to the book of Matthew. And I'm reading the book of Matthew. And for the first time in my life, I discover that, that Jesus died for me. Like, nobody had ever told me that before. Like, like, my whole life, no one had ever told me that Jesus died for me, and I'm reading it for the first time in the book of Matthew, and it's incredible that, that Jesus died for me. And then I start reading the book of Mark, and they killed him again. It's like, couldn't they learn? And I was like, no, 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 no. It's actually the, the same story, four different versions of the same story. So whoever that was for, there you go. Then we have the history section of the New Testament. It's the book of Acts. It's actually the Acts of the early church is what it was. They're actually their Acts, what they did. And it's, it's the, the first recording of the very first church established. And we actually study this as a church to make sure we're modeling our church off of the first century church. That, that we're following the model and the pattern that was established in the book of Acts. The next section is the epistles, 21 books. The epistles is a fancy Bible word for letters. It's just letters that the apostles and the disciples wrote to a lot of the new churches and a lot of the young pastors of the first century. So you've got all these churches that are planting up all over the Middle East. And so they write them letters. And in these letters, we get great doctrine. We get great teaching and instruction on how to live for Jesus. And then the last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation, and it's the Greek word apocalypsis. It's, it's the apocalypse. It's a revealing of the end times. How is it all going to play out? How is it all going to end? Like, like what's, what's going to happen? And so what I want to do now, that's, that's kind of an overview of the Old Testament and New Testament. Let me now give you a picture of the Bible. Let, let me give you actually the big picture of the Bible. It's what we call the plot. Anytime you read a book, there's a plot. Like, what, what's the, you know, you take a 600-page novel, and there's always one plot, one main central story. What's the plot of the Bible? And we actually call this the mirror image, the mirror image. And what I want to show you right now is how the Bible comes full circle, how it literally comes full circle. There's a mirror image in the Bible. Now, this is going to be very small because I had to kind of fit it all on one screen so that you can kind of see the mirror image all put together. So kind of pay attention. Make sure you write the notes because this is good stuff right here. Um, 
First off, in the beginning of the Bible, you have God and righteous man in paradise. God and righteous man in paradise. Righteous meaning he was perfect. When Adam and Eve were created, they were perfect. They were without sin. And this was God's desire. This still is God's desire. And I'm going to show you in a moment how God is going to bring us back here full circle. Because this is God's plan and God's heart is to live with mankind in paradise. But the problem was Satan and sin entered. The serpent came into the garden and sin entered. And this is the way I want you to think about sin. Anytime you hear the word sin, I want you to think sin separates. Sin separates. Sin sin creates a gap. God is holy, and through sin, we become unholy. Now there's a separation. There's now a gap between mankind and between God. And some of you, you feel that separation because, because you, feel, you feel like there's a gap between you and God. There's this separation between you and God that has to be dealt with, this chasm that, that has to be dealt with. And so that's what happens. Sin separates. And what, sin, what, what happens with sin is chaos ensues. Anytime there's sin, there's going to be chaos. If you want to know whether or not you're living in sin, ask yourself, is there chaos going on in your life? Because chaos always follows sin. And so chaos enters in the world, and the world begins to fall apart. And so the world has to be judged and destroyed. This is the story of the flood, Noah's Ark, where where the whole world is destroyed because of the chaos and because of the sin. And and so the people, you know, they start over, and and, and the people grow. And so they decide, okay, now that God is separated from us, if God won't come to us anymore, we'll go to God. Like, 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 we don't need God. We'll be like God. And what the people did, and you can read this in the Old Testament, is they create a one-world government system. And through this one-world government system, they have this plan. They build the Tower of Babel, and they are going to ascend to God. They are going to be like God. They're going to close the separation themselves. And so God confuses all of their languages, and now different nations are established out of these different languages. And so God says, I need to show up again. I need to reinsert myself into creation. And I need, to, I, I need to get hold of a nation of people and set them apart as an example. And they will be a blessing to all of mankind. And so God establishes the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, God's holy people. And he gives them the law. And actually, he wanted them to receive the law in their heart. But they said, no, we don't want it in our heart. Just tell us what to do. And so God gave them the law on tablets of stone. And the problem is they couldn't do it. They, they, they couldn't be good enough. They, they couldn't work hard enough. It, it, didn't, it didn't work. And here's really the divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is all about the external. The New Testament is all about the internal. It's what happens inside of the Old Testament. Is just tell us what to do, God. And the problem is they really didn't want to do it. And, and this, this problem began to grow because... They had this law that they couldn't live up to and and sin and something had to happen. And this brings us to God's plan for history and it's Jesus Christ. And Jesus is at the top and the center of it all. God sends Jesus to deal with this sin issue, to deal with the external that they couldn't do. Jesus could do the external. And, And so what happens is through Jesus, God says, now I can write it on your heart because of Jesus. Because sin can be dealt with. And here's, this, this is what I want you to think about God. Hell is not some place that God created to send people he's mad at. Hell is a place for people who decide they're going to pay for their own sin. That's all hell is. Hell is a place for people to decide that, that I'm not going to accept the gift of Jesus paying for my sin. I'll, I'll deal with it on my own. But again, it's not a place God sends people he's mad at. So Jesus 
he, he enters the scene. He begins to establish a, a new law, not written on stone, but written on our hearts, something that we didn't have to do, but something now we want to do. And he decides, I've got to establish a new people. So through the 12 disciples, God establishes a new people, the church. And this is exactly where we're at in history right now. If you want to know where are we in the story, where, where, are, where are we in the big picture, the plot of the Bible, this is exactly where we're at right now is, is the age of the church. God has established a church. Now, now here's what's alarming. We have never before in history been rebelling against this the way we're rebelling against it right now. Can I say when I was in high school, the, the, the culture of America, but morality in America between the church and the world wasn't that far apart. Like it was apart, but it wasn't that far apart. You look at the culture today and it is, it, it is as polar opposite as you can get. People are, are abandoning God like never before. They're, they're, they're not just abandoning God, but people are like fighting against him publicly like never before in the culture. And so what's, what's happening, and we see this being played out right in front of our eyes, is we see people moving to another one world government system all over again. This is the entire reason why Russia is getting involved in the Middle East. I mean, you see this playing out. You, you, you want to learn more? Go back to last year's. You asked for a series. We did two weeks on the end times and end times prophecy and kind of giving you like, like what's going to happen. Because during this time, the Antichrist is going to rise to power. He, he's going to broker a peace deal in the Middle East. He's going to institute one world currency. People are going to have to take the mark of the beast if you want to be able to buy and sell. The mark of the beast is either going to be on your hand or on your forehead, which means when you go to Target, you're going to have to like scan your head on the scanner to be able to buy anything. You needed to laugh right there a little bit. But, but, but that's next. And, and honestly, I personally believe this is going to play out in our lifetime. Like, like, like this, this, we are in motion for this right now happening. And I think this is going to be in our generation. Next up, you know, it gets bad. Antichrist rules the world. Things fall apart. So the world has to be judged and destroyed all over again. This time, not by water, but by fire. By fire. God is going to send a fire to purify planet Earth. To, to, to restore planet Earth back to its original plan. This is when Satan and sin exit the story. This is where Satan is taken, all of his demons, and they're thrown into the bottomless pit for all of eternity, and then gets us back to God's dream and desire for us, God and redeem man in paradise. And, and I say redeem, not righteous, because it's different now. God redeems us, and his plan is to bring us into paradise. Now, this word paradise in the Hebrew and the Greek, the closest English translation we would have to this word paradise is the word resort. I mean, no, God is good. I mean, that, that's God's plan, to bring us to a resort-like existence for all of eternity. And that's his goal. Like, we have some weird ideas about heaven. Like, there's so many people today who believe heaven is like, I'm going to be like white and wearing a white robe and floating in clouds, playing a harp. There's nothing further from the truth. When you study out God's plan for paradise, God's plan, and, and again, we did a series on this a couple of years ago on heaven. God's plan is to restore planet Earth back to the original Garden of Eden-like state before there was any sin, before there was any corruption, before there was any pollution. I want you to imagine planet Earth, as beautiful as it is right now, can you imagine this place fully restored, fully redeemed, fully brought back to the way it was always intended to be? No crime, no suffering, no pain, no sin. And we get to spend forever here with God. It's going to be amazing. 
That's why I get so tired of people talking about, like, when you die, you go off to the afterlife. The afterlife. No, no, no. When you die, you go to life. Like, this is the before life. That's life. Like, like this really isn't even living what we get to do here. We get, like, 80, 90 years here of before life. That's where life really begins. That's where it's going to get good. I mean, again, imagine what it's going to be like. It's going to get really, really, really good. So let me give you one more word picture, one more kind of can it help you. This is, this is the mirror image. This is the plot. This is how God's going to bring it full circle. This is the story you read in the Bible, cover to cover. Again, it's one story, cover to cover. Let me give you one more kind of word picture to help put all this together so that, again, you can begin to enjoy it at a level you've never enjoyed it before. And let me ask you the question, what is the subject of the Bible? Like if the Bible, if you could summarize the Bible into one sentence, what would the subject of the Bible be? Now, many people would say, well, it would be us. It would be us, people, because God did it all for us. Like, we're, we're the subject. No, we're the direct object. Like, we're the object of God's affection, but the subject of the Bible is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus cover to cover. And I know some of you are thinking, well, no, 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 it can't be Jesus because he doesn't even show up to the second act. Like, we don't even read about Jesus till we get into the book of Matthew, like, like over halfway through the Bible. Actually, you'll find Jesus in the book of Genesis. You'll find Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. One of the things I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about next week is there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament written 700 years before Jesus was born that talk about him. He is all throughout the Bible. Jesus actually said it like this. You search the scriptures. You, and again, he's talking about the Old Testament because you think that they're going to give you eternal life, but you're missing it. The scriptures simply point to me. Like, it's all about me. I'm all throughout the Old Testament. So here's the way I want you to read the Bible. Like, when you read the Bible, I want you to read the Bible, find Jesus. Read the Bible, find Jesus. I want you, every time you go into the Old Testament, I want you to go on a treasure hunt looking for Jesus. You'll find Jesus in every chapter of the Old Testament. I'm telling you, if you'll get that into your mind when you read it, that you're on this like treasure hunt, you will find Jesus all because the whole Old Testament points to him. So if Jesus is the subject, then let me ask, what's the verb? What's, what's the verb of the Bible? Now, many people would say the verb is love, right? Love. Love is the verb of the Bible. Like, like, like God loves. Well, let me say it like this. Love is the motivating factor. But the verb of the Bible is much greater than the word love. Much more powerful than the word love. Love is kind of the adverb. It, it describes like the why. But the verb is actually more powerful. Look, John three sixteen, For this is how God loved the world. So again, love is the motivating factor. But here's the verb. He gave. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So God didn't just love, God gave love. See, you'll, when you get this, you'll never read the Bible the same again. So again, the subject of the Bible is Jesus. And there's lots of adjectives for him. You can call him Christ, you can call him wonderful, you can call him awesome. There's all sorts of adjectives for him. The direct object of the Bible is us. Like, God did it for us. He loves us. The, the why, like, 
I'm doing second grade, you know, language with my son. He homeschools three days a week and goes to school. And so, so I get to learn second grade language all over again. And it's like, it, it's fun learning grammar. And one of the things like we're doing right now in second grade language arts is he has to, he has to understand the why. And they call them the howlies, the howlies of the sentence, like the lovingly verb, whatever it is. And so the why of it is love. But here's the verb of the Bible. You, you condense the Bible into one sentence. The verb is give. It's give. He was motivated by love, but the verb itself is give. And this is critical for you to understand as a follower of Jesus Christ. He gave, so we give. We give our lives, we give our time, we give our talent, we give every aspect of who we are because he gave. When you read through the Bible, look through the Bible through the lens of he gave, so we give. He gave, so we give. He gave, so we give. There is a lens, there is this filter of giving throughout the entire Bible cover to cover. And we all know John 3.16, but, but I want to show you something in 1 John 3.16. And before I do, let me say it like this. God didn't just give his son to die. Jesus was slaughtered. See, it's so easy to say Jesus died for me. He didn't just die for you. Jesus was slaughtered for you. He gave at a level and a degree nobody else could even come close to giving. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus was slaughtered on your behalf... What is the only appropriate response we should have for him to give it all? Let me show you 1 John 3, 16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. He didn't just give up his life for us. He was slaughtered on our behalf. What is the only appropriate response? So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and our sisters. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you've been sold anything else, or if you've had a pastor water this down to you, then forgive us. But I need to love you enough to tell you the truth. If you want to be a Christian, it has nothing to do with being a member of a church. What it means to follow Jesus is you give up your life. You live a life giving it all. Giving your time, your talent, your career, your marriage, your family, your money. You give everything to Jesus. That's, we're not building a club of trying to be good people. We are a church of people who are passionate about surrendering every aspect, every area every detail, every moment of our life to Jesus. That's what it means. And it's the only appropriate response in light of what he did on our behalf. In light of the, the level and the degree of his giving for us, how could he expect anything else? Like if you were Jesus, what would you expect? What would be an acceptable level of giving for you if you were Jesus in light of what he gave see God didn't send some broken down you know sick unemployed angel to die for us he sent his best he gave his all 
Anything less than that does not work for him. So how does that play out practically? Well, we all have a list. We all have a list. A list of what's most important to us. Chances are, Jesus is on your list. That's why you're here today. Like, we need, we need Jesus in our life. Like, I don't want to live a life without Jesus, so I, I need to get some of Jesus in my life. Here's the question, though. Is Jesus number one on your list? Is he number one? Have you rearranged every area of your life to reflect he's number one? In the area of my money, he's number one. In the area of my time, he's number one. In the area of my marriage, he's number one. In the area of my family, he's number one. Have you rearranged everything to reflect he's number one? Because it doesn't work any other way. I mean, think about it. If God is holy and he's awesome and he's powerful and he's mighty and and God is all of these things, can God take second place in somebody's life? Would you want to serve a God like that? Would, Would you want to give your life to serve a God who would take second place? I wouldn't. See, he gets to set the rules, not us. And he made the decision that it's all or nothing. There's no in between. Like you don't give some of your life to Jesus. You don't, you don't say, okay, Jesus, I'll surrender this to you and this to you and this to you, but not that. And, and over here, I, I can't, you know, I'll go 80%, but you, know, you just can't, I can't get to 100% here. I got to hold on, you know, for whatever. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so I I need to love you enough to tell you how this thing works. Good news, though, is when you surrender 100% to him, every area, every aspect, every detail, every moment of your life, you get all of him in return. Can I say you're going to win on that deal? Like that is a winning deal right there for you. It's powerful, but I know it's fearful. I I know it's like, you know, what if I surrender it all and I don't win? That's the fear we have. That's why why it's a step of faith. But I'm telling you, it'll it'll be the greatest decision you ever make. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect. Like, there's times we fail. There's times that that we don't do everything right. Because, again, it's all about a condition of our heart. It's a condition of our heart that, Jesus, I want you to be first in every area of my life. And so as we close today, I want to give you an opportunity to say a very simple prayer and kind of cross that line of of wherever you are. You may be like 90% right now for Jesus. And here's the problem with being 90%. For those of you that are like 90% for Jesus, the problem is you're so much better than everyone around you that you think you're like, you know, like I'm doing it. Like I'm better. No, no. Again, Jesus isn't judging you by the person sitting next to you. Like, Jesus isn't measuring, like, well, you gave 90%, and they all gave 70%, so you get rewarded. No, no, it doesn't work that way. It's all or nothing. He doesn't compare you to everyone else. He compares you to you. It's, it's 100% or it's 0%. There's no in-between. So if you're giving 90% of your life to Jesus, you're actually giving 0% of your life to Jesus. Because it means you're serving yourself. You're creating a God in your own image. Like, you're designing Christianity the way you want it to work. That's what 90% means. So in essence, it means you're serving yourself, not God. 
I want to give you a chance to surrender 100% to him. And I know this is very, very strong. And people are like, man, this is like 2016. You can't be that strong with people. Like our culture can't handle that. You know what? I got to love you enough to tell you the truth. Like you don't have to say yes. And no one's forcing you to do it. But I got to love you enough to tell you how this thing works. And it's 100%. It's 100%. So those of you that, that, that are, are ready, you're, you're, for what, you're ready. And those of you that God is, God is working on right now, and, and here's how you know, like I got the easiest job in the world because it has nothing, it has nothing to do with me trying to intellectually persuade you and, and make this make logical sense to you. At the end of the day, only God's spirit can draw you. And some of you feel that right now. Like right now, you've got this like kind of, it's hard to describe it. It's almost like a burning sensation inside of your heart. Like you feel this, it's like, it, may, it feels a little bit like, like this anxiety or this, this pressure, this, this, and it's almost like a tugging at your heart. I know, because I felt it when God was calling me. That's God calling you, trying to draw you unto him. He's saying, listen, give me your life. Give me your life. Give me your life. I love you. I want to be family with you. I've got so much for you. Give me your life. You have a choice right now to reject God. You can say no because because you, you feel it. I mean, I mean, those of you that are feeling it right now, you know, you, you, I'm talking right to you. You know, you know, and you have a choice right now. You can say no. You can say no. I reject you, or or you can you can surrender and you can say, you know what? It's time. I don't fully get it. I don't fully understand it all. It doesn't all, it doesn't quite all make sense to me right now, but I know I need to take this step and I'm going to do it today. So would you close your eyes for me just a moment? Those of you that, that are ready to take that step, I want to pray with you. There's nothing magical about this prayer. You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to stand up. This is between you and God. It's a moment between you and God. But if you're here today and you would say, you know what, it's, it's my time. It's time that, you know, for whatever reason, maybe you've, you've never even considered this decision and you're ready to make it, or maybe you've been going through the motions of church, or maybe you, you consider yourself 90%. And it's time for you to really give all to God because you know there's areas of your life that you've been holding on to. And, and it's time for you to let go of every area of your life and surrender every area to him. So whatever category or situation you're in, I want to pray with you. And, and just so I know who's praying with me, and, and again, this is a moment between you and God, so, so every eye closed, would you very quickly just raise your hand and say, I'm going to join you in that prayer today. Just right now, raise your hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate these hands everywhere. Now here's the prayer. Now again, this is this is a this is a commitment of your heart. So there's no like right words to say. Like you you can literally word this hundreds of different ways. Because at the end of the day, this is this is a commitment of your heart, not like a certain phrase that you have to say. That's religion. God wants relationships. So this is more of a cry of our heart. But the cry is simply this, and you can you can say this in the words I give you, or you can you can give God your own words. But it's simply Today, God, and just, just pray this in your heart. Today, God, I surrender to you my entire life, 100%, all, capital A-A-L-L, all. Uh, you get it all. Not holding anything back from you anymore. You get it all. You get it all. Whatever that means, you get it all. I'm living for you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. That's as simple as it is, because again, it's a cry of your heart. Now, I want to encourage you to take one more step, and that's to join a group of people that'll help you in that decision. Like you, here's the thing, you, you're not gonna be able to live that decision out by yourself. God rigged it where you're gonna need other people to help you in this journey. 
That's the way God designed it. It's his word made it very, very clear. I can't do this journey by myself. I need other people. So here's, here's what you can do. And this is between, you know, this, this is something you can do on your own. On the connection card you got in your worship guide, two boxes. I'm committing my life to Christ. I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. Your prayer reflects one of those. Either you went all in today for the very first time or you kind of went all in again, again. Either way, we'd like to know, because this is the most important decision you'll ever make on earth before you die. And we want to pray over it because it is the most important decision. We'll also send you an email, just a very simple email that gives you some next steps. That's all it does. Like we won't call you or, or show up at your house unless you, unless you want to meet with somebody. All we're going to do is send you an email because I, I feel like our job is just to put the ball in your court. Like if it's, if it's real to you, you're going to take the ball and run. You're going to take the ball and run. We're just going to email you the ball and let you decide what to do with it. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, thank you for today. God, we want to be people who build our life on your word so that when the storms come, our house is built on a rock. We will not crumble, but we will withstand any storm that hell sends our way. We will stand firm, God, building our life on your word and on your truth. Thank you, God, that your word isn't just pages of ink, but in the word itself is the power for fulfillment that this book is alive and we can have relationship with it and it can, it, it can breathe into us power and life. In the name of Jesus.